Good morning, Canyon Hills. I am delighted to be before you this morning. And, you know, we're wrapping up this series on the life of David. And I hope you guys have enjoyed it over the last four weeks. Uh, But if there's one thing that David's life teaches us is that in life, things rarely go as planned. In fact, we all know that plans are great. We should all plan. Everybody tells us we should plan and we should do that. But as great as plans are, the reality is that reality is greater than our plans. That reality always trumps our plans. That reality always wins. And sometimes that is because of things that other people do. And sometimes it's because of things that we do. And because things don't always go as planned, what we have at the end of the day is that sometimes our dreams won't come true. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And in fact, this message is entitled when our dreams can't come true. And it means that sometimes that those things that we've been working towards or or praying may not happen. And I know that that sounds a little depressing, but that's the reality of our situation sometimes. And as it turns out, we may not live happily ever after. Perhaps some of us won't get to walk our, our our daughter down the aisle. Maybe perhaps that second marriage is starting to feel like the first one. Maybe the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter is not coming home. Maybe you're not getting into that school you really wanted to get into. Maybe you're not getting that promotion and it looks like money's always going to be tight. And, and the thing is that depending on what kind of church you grew up in or what kind of religious background you have, when your dreams crumble and things aren't going in the direction that you thought they would, there's this, this internal sense of, of panic and, and sometimes anger. But then you feel like that God, God kind of promised you and, and maybe God owes you. You know, sometimes we feel that way because you played by all the rules and, and you did everything right. You know, you, you raised them right. You behaved, you waited. I mean, isn't there a cause and effect here? Isn't there some sowing and reaping? And yet your dreams aren't coming true. And even worse than that, sometimes it seems like everybody else's dreams are coming true. So today, as we wrap up the, the series in the life of David, we're going to ask the question that David's life answers for all of us. And that is, what should we do? What do we do when our dreams can't come true? And you may recall from previous weeks that when David was in his 20s, Thanks to the behavior and the decisions of King Saul, David realized that some of his dreams weren't coming true. And God had made David some very specific promises, but King Saul decided that David needed to die. And consequently, David finds himself out in the wilderness running for his life, and everything in this point in David's life is just upside down. And David did what many of us tend to do when our dreams can't come true. He panicked. And when he, when he panicked, he made bad decision after bad decision. And in fact, some innocent people died because of some of those decisions that he made. But during that season of life, he learned a very important lesson that we should all learn from. You see, about 22 years after David had become king, David is now in his 50s. He is no longer that cool kid that killed Goliath. And 50 is pretty, you know, today, in today's day and age, 50 is a pretty good age. But back in ancient times, 50 was pretty old. So David, now we're picking up the story. He sends off his men off to war. 
And he gets up one evening, and, you know, and this is a famous story. I think all of you guys have heard it. He, he looks down, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. Now, Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah, who was one of the commanders in David's army. And so he sees Uriah's wife bathing, and the key there, it's a wife. She is married, and he calls his servant over, and he says, hey, who's that? And the servant says that that is Uriah, the Hittite's wife. And David says, well, send her to me. Now, as we know from the beginning of this series that God had warned Israel and he has said, hey, don't have a king. And God says, let me be your king. Because when you have a king, there are problems that come with having a king. And one of the problems of having a king is that no one can tell the king no. You can tell a priest no. You can tell a prophet no. You can tell a judge no. But you can't say no to a king. So Bathsheba comes to David, and everybody pretty much knows the story. They spend the night together, probably several nights together. And then she sends a message to him and says, oh, no, I'm pregnant. And David, as always, he decides, hey, I can fix it. So he calls her husband over from the battlefield, hoping that Uriah, her husband, just would spend the night with his wife. And then the next morning, David gets up and Uriah still hasn't gone to sleep with his wife because Uriah isn't going to spend the night in luxury when his men are dying on the battlefield. You know, Uriah is a good man. He's an obedient man. He's a servant. So David writes a message to this other character. His name is Joab. Now, Joab is Uriah's commander, and he's also the commander of David's armies. So David says, hey, he writes this message to Joab, and he says, dear Joab, Put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle, and when things really get hot and fierce, just withdraw from him. So essentially what David is doing is he is signing a death sentence, a death warrant for Uriah. He signs it, and what's worse, he seals it, and then he gives it to Uriah to give to his commander for him to carry it out. And because you can't say no to the king, Joab follows through with the orders, and Uriah dies in battle. Bathsheba mourns, She's pregnant. David and Bathsheba get married and everything's good. And David again manages to take things into his own hands and he manages the outcome. Except that this was no secret. Because in, in a world where there's slaves everywhere, it's almost like the walls can talk. So everybody knew. Then in comes in another character. His name is Nathan. Nathan is a prophet and he makes an appointment with David. And he comes in to see David and he tells this fictitious story. And David gets really, really angry at the man in the story. And then Nathan says, hey, by the way, David, you are that guy in the story. You are that guy you're so mad at. And at that point, David breaks. And he allows the law of God to break him. But here's a problem. Every sin, and this is important, every sin, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a religious person or not, every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. And that day, as David began to mourn his own sin, this is what Nathan said to him. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, David, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David said to Nathan, and this is again important, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And then again, this is a reminder to us that even though David was king, and even though he was a flawed man, that he never abandoned God's law. He broke it, but then he would allow God's law to break him. And once again, we find him acknowledging his fault and surrendering to the will of God. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, David. But he is saying there is going to be some unavoidable consequence for what you did. David, you had someone killed. They were innocent. And then you try to hide it and you try to lie to an entire nation. You see, David, every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. So a year goes by and nothing happens. Five years go by and finally, 10 years later, this consequence finally takes a hold of David's life. And we see that it just turns David's life upside down. And we realize that at the end of the story, his dreams can't come true. David's oldest son was a young man named Amnon. And Amnon, because of the, being the oldest son, was in line to become the next king of Israel. But Amnon was consumed with this lust for, catch this, his half-sister named Tamar. So Tamar and Amon share one parent. And so Amnon just can't get her out of his mind. He is so consumed, so he devises this plan to get her attention. And he pretends to be very ill, and he sends a message to his father, King David, and says, David, because they didn't refer to him as dad, King David, is it okay if my sister Tamar prepares a special meal for me because I'm so ill? And of course, David says, that's fine. So she brings the meal over, and Amnon, at this point, sends everybody away from the room in the house, and now it's just the two of them, and proceeds to try to talk her in into going to bed with him. And she resists, and this is what she says. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. But the text says, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And this next verse to me is it's even more gut-wrenching. But again, you know, the biographers, the people who brings us this story, they don't skip any of the details. And the text says, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. So imagine she's devastated. She knows that her life is ruined forever. And in, and in this culture, that means she will never marry. I remember there, there's no secrets in the palace. So when King David finds out that his oldest son, what he did to his daughter, I mean, he's furious. But guess what he does? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And we're, we're left to guess as to why David didn't do anything. And maybe it was because David had lost his moral authority. I mean, who is David to tell anybody how to manage their private lives after all of the things that he had done? So David does nothing. Now, one of David's other sons, his name is Absalom. Absalom is David's third son. We think the second son at this time has passed away. So he's next in line to be king after Amnon. Absalom is also Tamar's brother. They share the same parents. So now Tamar is destitute. Absalom takes her into his home, and he too does nothing except one thing. He never speaks to Amnon again. And two years go by, and nothing happens. But you see, Absalom, 
he is a shrewd man. And when he thinks that everybody has forgotten, he decides to throw this big feast at home. And he invites the entire family. And first, he, he first invites King David and says, hey, you want to join us in this feast? And David says, I can. I'll be a distraction. Why don't you knock yourself out? And Absalom says, can I invite my brothers? And he says, yeah, go ahead, invite them. So Absalom has this big feast. He has his entire family, brothers around him, and he gets everybody drunk. And when Amnon himself gets really, really drunk and all of the brothers and the families are gathered around the table, he sends his men into the dining hall and they slaughter Amnon in front of all of the brothers. It's like a scene from The Untouchables or The Godfather. And the brothers get up and they flee to Jerusalem for their life, obviously. And then Absalom gets up and then he flees because he knows what's coming from King David. And he flees up north to what we call modern day Syria. And when King David finds out that his oldest son has been murdered by what we find out later to be his favorite son, Absalom, guess what he does? Nothing. And life just goes on. Three long years, things have settled down. Perhaps people have forgotten. Life's gone back to normal. And so David misses his son so much that he invites Absalom to go back to Jerusalem. And when Absalom gets there, he's told, hey, you're invited to move back into your home. You have all the same privileges, but King David refuses to see you. And so Absalom, for the next two years, tries to get in to see King David, and King David just continues to ignore him. Again, Absalom is shrewd. So he gets fed up, and he gets his servants, and, and he goes to Job's, Joab's farm. Remember, Joab is the commander of David's armies. So, and he, he was sometimes a go-between as well. When, when somebody wanted to get a message to King David, he would go to Joab. And Joab at this point won't have anything to do with Absalom either. And so Absalom sends his servants to Joab's farm and he burns down the entire farm. And Joab finally comes over to Absalom's house and says, hey, what's your problem? And Absalom says, so now that I have your undivided attention because I burnt down your farm, would you please tell my father that I want to see him? And Joab finally agrees. So finally, Absalom is now before the king, his father, and he bows down before him. And David lays hands on his son. And it was his way of saying, hey, you're forgiven. Our relationship is restored. But we find out that it wasn't. Absalom at this point is hurt. And the best that we can tell, David never calls for his son again throughout the rest of the story. And Absalom remains angry and he's hurt. So he decides that he's going to overthrow his father and take his kingdom. Perhaps he thought it's mine eventually. He might as well do it now. So he decides to get up early every single morning and set up a table. Essentially, what he's setting up is court outside the main city gates. And anyone who's coming to the city to try to get in to see King David to get justice for some cause... Absalom would come before them and say, let me help you. So he sets himself up as a judge and he would stay there day after day. And he would see all of these court cases that oftentimes would take weeks or months to be able to get in to see King David. And over time, the Bible tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. He did this for four years. He sat outside the gates of the city and he would talk to anyone, he'd hear any of their cases, and people started to recognize him, how smart he was, how wise he was, and how, what a great leader he was. And four years later, Absalom sets this plot into motion to overthrow his father. 
Then Absalom, the text tells us, sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, you know, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. So he had people, you see, scattered all over the primary cities. And he said, on a certain time, on a certain day, you're going to run through the city and just announce Absalom is king. Now, think about this. There's, there's no newspapers. There's no radio. There's no quick communication like Facebook. So people basically believe whatever they heard. And remember, Absalom had already stolen the hearts of the people. So this is very believable. So when the people heard that Absalom had become king, they rejoiced over all the kingdom, even though it hadn't actually happened. Now, this is 16 years later. And now David, if you remember the first stories we talked about, David's world is upside down again. His firstborn has been murdered by his favorite son, who is now instigating a civil war and is about to divide the entire nation. And then a messenger comes to David and says, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And when David hears this, apparently he wasn't completely surprised. The text says that, then David said to all of his officials, everyone who was with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee the city or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave here immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us. And he will put this entire city to the sword. David knew if I stay here and try to defend the city, if Absalom takes this city, he will assume everyone in the city sided with me and he will put everyone in the city to the sword. So David abandons the throne to save the city. And once again, David finds himself a fugitive. But this time, he's not 22 anymore. This time, he is 61 years old. Think about this. This, was, this wasn't his dream. This was not supposed to happen. This was not the way that he was supposed to spend this season of life. But the reality was that his dreams were not coming true. And as it turned out, they could not come true. Can you guys imagine after all that David has been through, and it looks like in this last season of life, his, his golden years, as we call them, that he finds himself walking out of the city, defeated and dethroned. And I just imagine David with his head hanging low, not being able to look around him, and the people following him. He's just walking out of the city, completely defeated. Can you guys imagine something like that? And, and the truth is that, that, that I think we can imagine. Maybe we're not, we're not kings and we're not losing a kingdom, but we can relate because this is a part of the story that our lives at some point in the past, now or in the present, intersect with the life of David. Because some of us here today find ourselves heartbroken, disappointed, maybe angry, frustrated with God, maybe looking for someone to blame. Maybe you've decided to blame God. After all, where is God? God could have kept this from happening. What's the point of going on? What is the point of trying? I mean, why even try? You've hung in there with him or her after all of these years, and, and she still does this to you? Look what they've done. You've waited and you've waited, and for what? I mean, you've raised them right you don't deserve to be treated this way. Look at the way they're treating you. I mean, we were told that if we were honest, that good things happen, and I was honest, and I still lost my job. 
You've worked hard, but it hasn't really worked out. And oftentimes, because we're so angry and we're so hurt and we're so frustrated with God that we tend to be disappointed with God. But instead, we hurt ourselves, which creates more regret, which creates more debt, which creates more pain, and therefore more pain relievers, and yet there's more pain. But this isn't the first time that David had faced this situation. And David remembered, because the first time he fled the kingdom, remember, he took matters into his own hands, but he had learned something along the way. And this is the lesson from the life of David today. And this is the lesson from this season of life of David that we, this morning, need to take to heart. So here's what happened. The whole caravan of all of his family and all his supporters are now filing out of the city, trying to get out of Jerusalem before Absalom and his men and his followers get there. So David isn't even sure where they're going at this point. He just knows this. We got to get out of the city, and anybody who supports me needs to get out of the city as well. Now Zadok, who is a high priest, was there too. He was leaving the city with David and all of his Levites. Now the Levites were the tribes that take care of all the sacrificial system. They were with him, and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, this is really important here because when you read these stories, you quickly dismiss the significance of this. The Ark of the Covenant of God represented the presence of God in ancient Israel. You could not be closer to God. In fact, if you took the Ark of the Covenant into battle with you, you were sure to win. So when David saw them bringing the Ark of the Covenant out of the city, it looked as if the presence of God was leaving, leaving the city and going with David. And David couldn't handle that. He couldn't handle the implications, and they were a bit overwhelming for him. And in fact, listen to what he says. Then the king said to Zadok, the king, King David, take the Ark, take the ark of God back to the city. Now the people who were around David and heard them make this command, I, I can assure you they, they groaned and they moaned. Because one of the things that gave them courage and confidence was that they were following the king, but they were also following the presence of God. So for David to command to take the presence of God back to the city, to take the blessings of God, the Ark of the Covenant, back into the city, it was like saying, Absalom is right and we are wrong. But listen to David's explanation. He said this, if, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, in other words, I'm not going to try to manipulate God. I'm not going to try to talk God into doing something he doesn't want to do. I'm not going to play games. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it, the ark in his dwelling place. Again, if God chooses to bring me God back, God chooses to bring me back. But I am not taking my matters into my own hands. But if he says, David said to Zadok, but if he, God says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. And here's the punctuation. Let him, talking about God, let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, David is saying, not my will, your will be done. Because every time I do my will, I mess things up. Every time I have my way, I get in the way. And folks, this is our lesson this morning. 
that David lost his world, but he did not lose his confidence in God. David's entire world is upside down at this point, but he does not lose his faith in God. He doesn't reject the law. He doesn't consider himself above the law. David, again, understands that he's flawed. He's not a perfect man, but he refuses to abandon God. And think about this. Even when it appeared that God had abandoned him. So Absalom, at this point, shows up in the city. He takes the city without a fight, but it's a hollow victory. Because the only way for him to proclaim himself the non-disputed king is to actually put his father to death. And David is still alive. So he's setting up the palace and, and his throne and deciding what to do next. And then walks another character in the story, and his name is Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was one of David's trusted advisors and probably Bathsheba's grandfather. But Ahithophel changes sides when he realizes that Absalom is going to be the next king. So when Absalom shows up, Ahithophel is there to welcome him and say, hey, I'm here to be your advisor, just like I was an advisor to your father. And Absalom says, well, Ahithophel, what should I do next? And Ahithophel gave Absalom this advice, and it was really, really good advice. He says, you need to get your men and pursue your father immediately. Don't let him get organized. Don't let him gather people around him. He's tired. They left in a hurry. They're not ready. He's not ready to put up any defense. And once he's gone, all of the people who left the city with him will follow, and they're just going to follow you back, and it'll be your kingdom. You'll be the undisputed king of Israel. In other words, he's saying, you know, God, you got to hit him while they're weak. But there was another counselor, and his name was Hushai. Now, Hushai was actually, had actually left the city with David, and he was walking out defeated. Because, and then David realizes that Ahithophel was stealing the kingdom, so he tells Hushai, hey, I want you to go back into the city, and I want you to greet Absalom, and I want you to pretend to be a good advisor, and when Absalom asks you for advice, I want you to frustrate the plans of Ahithophel. So Hushai went back into the palace, and when Absalom met Hushai as, as they were coming into the palace, he said to him, you've heard Ahithophel's advice. What do you recommend? And here's what Hushai said. The advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. That was bad advice. Let me tell you what you ought to do. Absalom, think about it. You know your father and his men. They're fighters. He may be 61 years old, but do not be fooled by his age. He is still a fighter and as fierce as wild bears robbed by their cubs. And Hushai here is saying, you know, don't rush. Don't listen to Ahithophel. Take your time. Consolidate. Gather a larger army. Wait. And once you gather all of the tribes to yourself, then you can personally lead a campaign and overthrow your father. So Absalom thinks that's great advice. But here's what happened. Ahithophel knew what was in store for him. He knew the writing in the wall. He knew what was near. He knew that if David is given time to gather and organize, that there's no way that he would be defeated in combat. Ahithophel knew that. So what do you guys think he does? He goes to his house and he hangs himself. David, in the meantime, goes to the city that you probably never heard of called Manaim. And he hears that Absalom is coming, and he realizes that he has no choice. Think about this. He has no choice now but to confront and defend himself against his beloved son. 
So David does a very smart thing. David divides his army into thirds and he puts a different commander over each of those armies and then he gives them very specific instructions. He said, when you catch up with Absalom's army and when you catch up with Absalom, be gentle with the young man. Absalom, for my sake, he loves his son. In other words, he's realizing, I realize this is war. I realize this is going to be chaotic, but if there's any way to spare my son's life, I want you to spare his life. And all of the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. And David's generals insist that David not join them in battle. So David stays on the walls of the city and he just watches his soldiers march out to confront his son in battle. Now the text tells us that this battle did not take place on the open plain, but it actually took place in the forest of Ephraim, which meant that superior numbers meant very little. And experience and organization and communication were going to matter more in battle. And fortunately, David was wise enough, and we don't know if David's men were able to just kind of draw them into the forest, but we do know that David's men were organized better to fight under those conditions because he had divided them up into thirds, whereas Absalom's troops were all looking to him for leadership. And then the text says this, 2 Samuel chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, there Israel's troops were routed by David's men and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the entire countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. And I think what had happened is that there was low-hanging branches, there was probably a lot of roots, a lot of soft spots, and that it just tripped up all of these horses. Anyway, many men were injured or taken out of the battle because of the fact that they were fighting in the forest. And eventually what happened is that Absalom gets caught and instead of being held prisoner, like David had said, Joab kills Absalom. And once Absalom was taken out of action, once the people knew that he was dead, his army immediately just stopped fighting and the text tells us they all just dropped their weapons and they just headed back to the city and went back home. When David is told that Absalom is dead, he mourns the loss of his son. In fact, he mourns the loss of his son so much that the soldiers are afraid to celebrate their victory. So Joab goes to David and says, Hey, David, you know, you mourning your son is a good thing and all, but it's like the men feel as if you wish they were dead and your son was alive. So go out there and, and celebrate the victory because David, they just gave you your kingdom back. But you see, like it would be for all of us. It was a hollow victory. Because David loved his son so much, and now it's his other son that is dead. And he returns to Jerusalem as the king. But as it would for you and me, his world would never be the same again. The Bible tells us that nine years later, at the age of 70, David dies. Now, it really speaks to the authenticity of this account that, again, the biographers seem to have done nothing to hide from us all, all of David's faults and his failures and his flaws. And the thing that's so amazing, and that I think that I want us to take away as we wrap up this series in the life of David, is that with all of his flaws, David never lost his confidence in God. When things didn't go his way, 
and, and it was somebody else's fault, like King Saul, and when things didn't go his way, and it was his own fault, like Bathsheba, with all of that, he never lost his confidence and his faith in his God. That David's somewhat sad ending, and if you think about it, David did some amazing things, but it's kind of a sad ending. It reminds us of something very important, and it's simply this, that the foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is not everything going our way. In fact, the foundation of our faith is not happily ever after. In fact, it is always, it is always a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams. In other words, my dreams came true. God is good. My dreams didn't come true. There is no God. Where is God? What's the point? It's always a mistake to wrap our faith and wrap our confidence in God around our dreams coming true because dreams that come true or dreams that don't come true say nothing, absolutely nothing about the presence or the goodness or the faithfulness of God. You know, and I think David, of all the people in the Old Testament, would be the quickest to remind us this morning that when we feel forsaken, that we are mistaken. That when circumstances don't go our way, when our dreams can come true, to assume from circumstance that God is not real or that he is not present, they would say, you know, don't make that mistake. Because David would say, because through all of the highs and all of the lows and all of the ups and all of the downs, God was with me. And we would do well in our own circumstances and in our own broken hearts and in our own anger and in our own dreams that can't or won't come true to join David in this extraordinary statement that he makes when he's leaving the city. You guys remember? He's walking out of the city. All hope is gone. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see the city again. He doesn't know if his kingdom will ever be restored. He doesn't know what's going to happen to his son that he loves so much. He doesn't know what's going to happen to this season of life. To join him when he makes this incredible, incredible statement. If, David says, I don't know the future, but if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, not my will, but your will be done. You know, he's saying, I know how I want things to turn out. I know how I prayed they would go, but not my will, thy will be done. I may lose my world, but I will not lose my confidence or my faith in God. I choose not to abandon him, even if it appears, this is hard, even if it appears that God has abandoned me. In fact, David wrote this. David journaled this. Maybe these are the very same words or statements that got David through some of the hardest parts of his life. He penned these powerful words that regardless of how things are going, when my dreams are coming true, or when they're not coming true, and when they can come true, Psalm 25, David writes, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. You know, Larry prayed earlier about all of the people that are, that are struggling in our church. 
I know there's more than 30, but 30 that actually have said something. And what's amazing is that you are surrounded by people that if they were to come up here one by one and give you their story, this is their story. Story of heartbreak, of disappointment, uh, uh, of sickness. It's the stories of, of broken promises, of broken dreams that, that can't come true. But you're also surrounded by those same men and women who have an extraordinary faith and confidence in God because in spite of what happens around us, we can say with confidence, not my will, but thy will be done. It is no wonder that Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because he knew that times would be tough. It is no wonder that Jesus himself said on the cross, when he felt all alone, abandoned, defeated, dethroned himself, he said, not my will, but your will be done. So this morning, I just encourage you to take not my words, but his words to heart that you would be able to respond back and reflect as we sing this next song and say, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful to you this morning because we get to hear your word and and we know that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, Father. So I just pray right now for all of us here, Lord, who love you and want to follow you and do the best we can in, in following, understanding, and obeying your word, Father. I just pray that you would do that thing that we can do, and that is to stir hearts and to encourage people that need encouragement, to comfort people that need your comfort, Father. Lord, as we all in boldness say, your will be done, Father. I pray that you would go before us outside of these walls and outside of these doors when we walk out, that we would just be stepping into your will, that you would be a light unto our path, Father, that we know unequivocally that you are with us. And as we cry out to you and say, Abba, Father, help me, Lord, that we would have this confidence that because you are for us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And because we've known in the past that you are with us, Father, we can honestly say that not our will, but your will be done. Help us to do that, Father. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.